Hi, thank you. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today. Um, I am uh, one of the co-chairs of the Commercial Fraud Committee, along with Eric Madden of Reed Collins and Sai, who's also on the line. He'll chime in in a little bit. Uh, we just wanted to welcome you to part of our ongoing series of committee-wide phone calls, um, the purpose of which is partially to update you on what's going on with the committee. Um, we also like to have a, a featured guest speaker to discuss topics of relevance to the committee, and we've been working our way through the uh, ABI's commission report to study the reform of Chapter 11, picking out particular uh, issues of interest uh, to discuss. Today our guest speaker is going to be Sam Schwartz, uh, who will address, address the issue of the proposed revisions to Section 550 in the commission report, and we'll get to him in just a few minutes. Um, but before we do that, I wanted to share with you some of our plans for the upcoming year tell you also a little bit about what we've been up to this past year and the first part of this year. Um, and then I do want to introduce our new leadership team. We had a little bit of a change uh, in April, and they can each tell you a little bit about the particular projects that they've been working on. So last year, um, the committee produced, uh, well, we did a lot. We actually had a, a book published, The Fraud and Forensics Piercing Through the Deception in a Commercial Fraud Case. And from that, we did a series of three different webinars. Hopefully, you participated or you were able to participate in them. You can, uh, I think, still access them online. They were fraud and forensics, the investigation phase of a commercial fraud case, fraud and forensics, the expert witness, and fraud and forensics, lawyers and forensic accountants working together to win cases. Um, so we had a lot of fun with those. We are working on a couple of new webinars right now. One of them, we're actually going to join forces, um, our, our committee is going to join forces with another organization called the National Association of Federal Equity Receivers, and we are going to put on a joint webinar, it's presently scheduled for November 8th, uh, where we're going to deal with issues of interest, maybe a, a comparison of um, how a, a large fraud case would work its way through the bankruptcy system or through a federal equity receivership. Um, so more on that to come as we as we refine that. And then um, Eric, I know, is also working on a webinar. Eric, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're working on? Thanks, Kathy. So uh, I'm working on a webinar that's going to focus on pending criminal or investigatory uh, or regulatory investigations and how that can affect the estate's pursuit of litigation. Um, this is going to focus on things like the Fifth Amendment, uh, coordinating with criminal or regulatory authorities, um, making file access requests, for example, to the SEC, uh, potential stays of litigation in the civil context due to a pending criminal matter, um, things like that. Um, our panel that we're working to put together is going to include, uh, hopefully, uh, uh, current or former uh, uh, attorneys at the SEC, the Department of Justice, as well as uh, lawyers who regularly handle uh, these kinds of matters in the private civil context. So uh, we hope to have this webinar put together and an announcement made um, uh, later this summer. So if anyone has any ideas, um, would like to be a speaker, has have ideas about speakers or topics, please feel free to reach out to me and I'd love to get you involved. Great, um, thanks. And and on the similar vein, if any of you have any ideas about entirely unrelated but relevant topics for other webinars, contact either Eric or I, um, and we'll see if we can put them into production. The more the merrier, we figure. Um, okay, so let's then talk about 
the educational programs that we've been putting on at the ABI conferences. Uh, just at the um, at ASM at the Spring Conference in April, uh, we did a joint presentation with the International Committee, um, and we discussed. We had a great panel; got a lot of good positive feedback. Um, issues about um, locating and 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 seizing assets overseas. Um, so that was very well received. We are working on our panel presentation for the ABI Winter Conference that will be in December this year. And uh, we have paired up with the litigation committee for that one. We're going to be doing a mock expert witness examination in dealing with um, proof of a Ponzi scheme for purposes of the Ponzi scheme presumption. Uh, the title of that one is going to be John, or we think it's going to be John X. Pert on the stand, the mock direct and cross-examination of a forensic accountant to prove the Ponzi scheme, although we are still waiting approval of that um, from the ABI, but those are the tentative plans. So with that, let me introduce the rest of our leadership team to you. You've met Eric. Probably you all know Eric already. Um, Rick Ryan is our education director. He unfortunately could not be on the line today, which is why I just sort of ran through our educational programs. Um, next, let me introduce our newsletter editor, which is Ryan Blackney, who was last year our um, ListServe communications director. Ryan, you want to say a few words about what you're up to? Sure. Can you hear me, Kathy? Yes. Great. Yeah. So, um, uh, hello, everyone. My name is Ryan, as Kathy said. Um, we, uh, I just received the, the torch on the committee newsletter from Rick Rain, who uh, would be pleased to hear me say that he went out with a bang if he was on the line. He put out, I think, as you probably have seen, he put out two newsletters, I believe, in the last 30 days or so, uh, the most recent one being last week where there were three articles and the one preceding that had seven. So I have my work cut out for me to, to match his good work uh, with the newsletter. But we have another one uh, coming out soon. I believe it's due to the ABI on June 7th. And I have, let's see, I've got my list right here. It looks like I have seven authors lined up. Uh, but that's been winnowed down to six. Uh, one of the authors wanted to write about the new Husky versus Ritz case, but that was taken by the most recent newsletter. So, um, so I look to carry that forward. And anytime anyone is interested in either contributing uh, an article or an idea for the listserv or for the committee newsletter, please feel free. You'll be seeing plenty of emails from me soliciting that type of work product from you all. So. I'm looking to get started in the next few weeks with the first newsletter. So that's the update. Thanks, Kathy. Great. Thank you so much, Ryan. You're doing great work. Um, and then we have a Thanks. new listserv, um, I think, communications director. I forget the exact new title that we have this year, but that's uh, Nate Palmer at Reed Collins and Tsai. Um So, Nate, tell us what you're up to. We've already seen a lot of uh, e-blasts from you. Are you there? Do we, is Nate on the line? Well, maybe Nate didn't make it, unfortunately. Well, anyway, he's been, you've seen emails from him already if you're on this call because he's been sending out the reminders for us. And he's already uh, taken up the job that Ryan was doing last year in uh, summarizing cases of relevance. If any of you guys see a case come across your desk that you think would be interesting to uh, write a little blurb on, if you don't want to do it yourself, you can certainly uh, send the idea to Nate who might take it and run with it and, and circulate it to the group. Um, next, I want to introduce our um, membership leader, our director of membership, who is Melissa Davis. And Melissa, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what you're up to. Hi, everyone. Thank you, Kathy. 
Um, so as part of my role in membership relations, my goal is to kind of try to raise awareness among ABI members regarding the Commercial Fraud Committee. And as part of that, I'm going to try to organize a reception for the committee at the Winter Leadership Conference. And the idea would be for the members to be able to get together and have face time, which is always important. And we can talk about what's happening at the conference and in the industry, and also discuss you know, what's happening with the committee. And along that regard, if anyone has ideas on how to expand awareness about membership of the committee, please feel free to reach out to me, and I'd be happy to work together with you to implement them. Thank you. Great. Thank you. And then last but not least, we have Kenny Morena, um, who is a partner at Damien and Valori LLP in Miami. Um, and he has been uh, last year, and he's continuing on this year, the leader of our special projects on this particular project, our committee-wide calls, where he is identifying the topics and the speakers um, that we um, are, are, are adding to these phone calls. So with that, let me turn it over to Kenny. And Kenny, you can introduce our guest speaker for today and uh, get going with the substantive conversation. Sure. Thanks, Kathy. Uh, can everyone hear me? Yes. Okay, great. Um, so uh, as Kathy said, I, I, I've been working on identifying issues that are relevant to our committee um, from the Chapter 11 Reform Commission report and other issues. We, we, we've identified some other issues and current topics that we would like to discuss during some of our subsequent calls. Um, and, and I can go over those um, after we deal with the issue today. But today's issue is um, it's the proposed changes to Section 550 related to claims against subsequent transferees. Um, and I've invited um, Sam Schwartz to talk about that issue. Sam is an attorney who is a co-founding partner of uh, the firm of Schwartz Landsberg in Nevada, in, in Las Vegas. And he has spent most of his nearly 20-year career working on all sorts of bankruptcy matters, um, mostly uh, corporate restructuring and workouts and Chapter 11 cases, but also lots of commercial litigation involving um, avoidance claims among various other types of litigation. So I thought Sam could talk a little bit about this particular issue, which to me doesn't seem so controversial, but it's certainly something that I think a lot of us on this call and in this committee have dealt with uh, throughout their practice. So, um, Sam, if you could um, jump in and, and give a little preview of what the topic is, um, what the recommendation of the of the commission is, and how you see that working or not. Well, happily, uh, sorry, I had to unmute myself. This is this is Sam Schwartz, and uh, thank you for inviting me, Kenny, to speak today. Uh, a couple of things. Just a little bit of background before I dive into 550. Um, I'm a lucky guy. Uh, I, I used to work for Kirkland and Ellis in Chicago, and then White and Case in Miami before I got to uh, Nevada to practice. And, and for those of you who heard Kenny say Nevada, um, if you come to court here and in front of our, any of our judges, be sure you say Nevada because if you say Nevada, they'll know you're from out of town and you might get it a little bit. So, uh, practice note: if you're going to be here locally, uh, for whatever reason. The locals take that name issue seriously. Uh, and I, to swing to, to 550, to what we're here for a little bit, um, when I was at White and Case in Miami, I had, that's where I met Kenny, actually, is how, what got me to the call. 
I had the, the pleasure of working on a, a case called uh, IT Group, where White and Case decided to take on all of the preference and fraudulent transfer work out of that case, which was, was like 1,200 actions, I want to say, that we took on. It was a big number. But um, it's a segue into talking about uh, some of the experience and what some savvy practitioners will do under the code and the rules at the moment when you start talking about the interplay between the Chapter 5 causes of action like 547 preferences, 548 fraudulent transfers, uh, Bankruptcy Rule 7001, which talks about what kind of actions need to be done by an adversary, and, and thoughtful litigators who are interested in delay and obstruction, what they will do uh, under the rules on a procedural basis. So let me dive into that a little bit. Um, Section 550, the way it, it's written, talks about that when a, a trustee or in Chapter 11, when the bankruptcy, when the debtor in Chapter 11, who is the trustee in, in that type of case, wants to recover property, whether it's a fraudulent transfer or even turnover from that matter, if they want to recover property, arguably they have to bring first uh, an action to avoid a preference or a fraudulent transfer. And then once that action is over, then, and they've won, you've actually avoided a transfer and got a ruling from a bankruptcy judge that a preference for some number needs to be returned to the estate, then you are supposed to bring a second action to recover that money under Section 550 of the code. So what, what 550 calls for today, the way it's written, is a two-step process. First, you avoid. Then second, you bring the recovery action. And, and that recovery action under 550 may involve uh, third parties who were not involved in the first action because you, you could have brought a fraudulent transfer that went to party A, but that money has since moved on to party B, C, and D, and so your 550 action should go forward then to, to bring a claim against parties B, C, and D. So um, in practice, truthfully, why I think Kenny's right that the, the, the change that's proposed to 550 under the rules isn't controversial, in practice, most of us who've done this for a long time do that anyway. We bring a 547 and a 548 action for preferences and fraudulent transfers and whatever else we can think of, and whatever else we can think of is going to be important about what I want to talk about next. Whatever else we can think of, we bring that action and we throw 550 in there too, looking to wrap it up in one place. And most practitioners will let you get away with that. But um, you see this in other places inside the code where we're, we're actually supposed to do it in a two-step process and where thoughtful, experienced lawyers will bring defenses and say, hey, judge, you need to dismiss that 550 claim uh, on a procedural basis or on a summary judgment basis. They'll say, yep, you have to dismiss that 550 claim because under the code and under the rules, you can't do it that way. And why I mentioned... Sam, let me just jump in for a second. Also, I mean... The the and the issue that's specifically addressed by the commission report here is that the subsequent transferee actions are going to are you know sh or, or under the code are to be brought separately as well, not just a, a, a regular initial transferee recovery action, but the subsequent transferee actions. So, um, and I think that that poses slightly different issues as far as. Uh, why it would be a separate action versus the same action. So go ahead, sorry. Right, no, no, thank you, Kenny, I, and I think that's right. So essentially when you talk about avoiding a transfer from a debtor to a third party, 
that's one action. And and then once that avoided transfer is done, you have to look to see where did the money go. I think is your point, Kenny, that then there could be those further parties you need to sue to recover all the money because it's been spread around. So in that context, you would first avoid the transfer, then you would bring a new action against all the parties that got the money after the first transfer occurred to bring it back under 550. Well, most of us in practice who've been doing this for a while, we try to wrap it up into into one action. Savvy litigators on the other side understand the procedural nuance. My partner, Frank, is exceptional at procedure. And when he and I were talking about this, he's actually the guy who's unhappy about the proposed rule change, which I want to step into next, which is he likes the procedural delay tactics. That's what he likes to do. So um, he defends those types of actions oftentimes. And what the rule seeks to do now under 550, the proposed change, is that instead of having this two-step process, 550 will be changed to allow an action to be avoided and the recovery to be brought against anyone who received any of the money in any fashion in one setting. And in, in return for that change under 550, the proposal is that all of those potential defendants will be able to bring all their defenses in the initial action, including, for example, the initial transferee's defenses if the initial transferee isn't defending. I read that change to also include uh, jurisdictional uh, defenses because you could potentially be seeking to recover against a third party, if you're in Nevada, for example, against a third party in Florida where Kenny is, and suddenly there's a question about whether the Nevada Bankruptcy Court has jurisdiction over a third party non-debtor strong arm all the way out in, in Florida. Can you get there? So those defenses would, would be available. Uh, subject matter jurisdiction type defenses would be available, which I think gets you into those stern type questions. If you're familiar with those, that if it's a state court type fraudulent transfer, does the Nevada debtor arguably have to go to Florida to, to prosecute their claims? Those kinds types of defenses would be available to those subsequent transferees who are now brought into the action under 550. So, in a in a broader scope of things, in my view anyway, I think this type of change is unobjectionable. Because in the bankruptcy world where you're typically fighting over a limited pool of resources where you may have uh, counsel who have limited assets to, on both sides, limited assets to prosecute and defend, it makes sense to wrap things up. And it's really just the obstructionist type counsel who want to uh, defend and push back that might be opposed to this type of rule change. So on, on an initial point before I move on to the next steps, I Ask Kenny if you have anything you want to add about the rule change itself and and how it might affect us. One of the issues that jumps out at me and which uh, which we had discussed is when you if you're going to be bringing an action against all subsequent transferees. Well, first of all, um, you might not know who they are, but if you do know who they are, um, because there could be multiple levels of subsequent transferees then you know you should probably know um all your potential claims against that subsequent transferees um in case you have in case it's a compulsory claim where you would have to bring it all together as opposed to um you know bringing claims against that defendant piecemeal um so that could raise some issues of if you're going to bring them all in the same suit do you have to bring all your claims you have against this entity or person who you might not know you know whether there are other claims that the trustee, for instance, might have against that party. So I think that that dovetails into what I wanted to mention next. So, so first, it, it seems uncontroversial 
that that five fifties changed. Truthfully, most of us who've been doing this for quite some time, uh, we do it that way anyway. I first saw this back to that IT group uh, comment about the twelve hundred actions. Most of them, we brought a five forty seven preference action and a five fifty recovery claim in the same complaint. Nobody objected, but there were a few smart uh, defense counsel who who brought. Uh, procedural defenses, and those are winners. So um, you get some judges who who might want to push back on the procedural aspects as somewhat a waste of time, uh, and and may overrule them. But I think there's an appellate issue there potentially. Um, so it adds a layer of risk that's probably unnecessary. So the changes an appellate risk is probably unnecessary. So the changes of 550 really aren't controversial. In no so small I'm, part, I'm curious to to know whether anyone on the call. Um, has any objection to the proposal of the commission on this issue? Because I've talked to a lot of people, and I didn't, I've, I haven't talked to one yet who has, a, has an issue with it. Anyone? Kathy, what do you think? Uh, I, you know, I'm all for practical, so I don't have an issue with it. Okay. So jumping to to practicality for a second, um, something that I'm starting to see more and more, in particular in Nevada, is a broader and broader view of judges about potential risks that come from claim, issue, and party preclusion. And, and I think this is one place with the rule change that people who are practicing really need to think about when you get involved in these actions. So, for example, many of us deal in fraudulent transfers potentially and, and somewhere because we have an insolvent debtor or a debtor was made insolvent by a transaction. And in connection with that transfer, there's some sort of contract involved. And so there's a breach of contract claim floating around in there, You know, maybe some unjust enrichment claims, maybe some breach of good faith type allegations, fraudulent transfer, similar stuff, maybe some declaratory relief. Well, um, and, but to Kenny's point earlier, you may not know where the money went when you start your action. You find out during the course of the case. Uh, Nevada, in, in a recent Supreme Court opinion called Weddell v. Sharp, took a very broad view of party preclusion and said in a case where you may have been able, should have known or were able to find out in the course of your case other potential parties that might have been liable in connection with whatever claims you were asserting, and you do not join them in the case, you are precluded down the road from trying to sue them later. And in a couple of cases here I'm seeing in the bankruptcy context, and, and these are becoming appellate issues, we're, we're seeing parties, I'm seeing anyway, parties take broad views of claim and issue preclusion that are coming out of litigation where the operative facts in the underlying case should have given rise to additional claims you should have known or additional issues you should have vetted or other parties you should have sued. And because you've elected to or didn't think to bring those claims or parties, you're not precluded down the road from, from bringing them. And my bigger takeaway from the 550 change, uh, Kathy, to your point that it's practical and should be approved, my bigger takeaway is probably should step back from your case and think long and hard about who you might need to bring in, and what other claims you might need to, to allege, especially in the fraud context, because you know the who, what, when, where, why, and how that's necessary to plead fraud claims make it hard to argue down the road 
you, sh you didn't know there was another party you should bring in or another claim you might want to bring or other uh, type allegations you might want to wage because you don't want to lose them. And, and that's my biggest takeaway from the 550 change. Be careful that you don't miss anything and step on a landmine by uh, not pursuing everybody and everything from the outset. Okay. Um, I think that touched on everything that you and I had discussed on this issue. Um, I don't know if, if we can open it up to questions or suggestions or uh, right now on this. Does anyone have any comments? I, uh, Sam, thank you very much for that. I, I actually enjoyed that, and, and you're right. I mean, you really have to sort of go into these cases with your eyes wide open thinking about it all. Often, of course, you don't know who all the subsequent transferees are, so that that's a whole other practical problem. But um, thank you. That was a really useful discussion. We appreciate it. Um, I'm told that uh, Nate was actually on the line but couldn't get unmuted, so I wanted to give him an opportunity to just say hi to everyone. Nate, are you are you still there? I think I am. Can you hear me? Yes, we got you now. <laughs> all right, got to twerk. Hi, everyone. I'm Nate Palmer. Um, Kathy basically said everything I had to say. Again, if you have any cases that you run across that you don't want to send a blurb out on, please let me know, and I'd be happy to cover it. Okay, and um, I thank you, everyone. If, if no one has any comments, we will um, try to get another call scheduled in probably another couple of months, and uh, we will keep you all up to date on what is going on. Thank you all for taking the time. We appreciate it.